Whereas happiness is this this state of being. Mm. And so a lot of the time, I think people think they're going to feel happy because of something they've done or they've got or they've had. Whereas it's really happiness is a choice about how you experience things. So you can be a happy person who's going through a really difficult time or a happy person who's feeling sad or experiencing grief. So to me, that's where happiness becomes voice because it's about how are you going to move through this life? How are you going to be? What do you want your set point to be? Hello, beautiful people. On today's podcast, we have Dominic Bertolucci. Dominic is one of Australia's most popular life coaches with over 25 years experience of working with large corporations, dynamic small businesses, and everyday people teaching them how to get more happiness and more success. Dominic, known as a happiness expert, is the host of three Audible original podcasts and is the international best-selling author of eight books, including The Happiness Code and The Seventh Step Mindset Makeover. What I personally love about this conversation is Dominic's generosity in sharing many of her life coaching teachings. From the importance in getting clear on your values to ensure you stay on a path of fulfillment, to practical steps in how to deal with our inner critic, to her process of how to experience happiness. She shares her architecture of change, of why we should focus on mindset over action, and her intention method, of why most people fail to achieve their goals. She also goes deep on what self-sabotage is and how we can overcome it. There is a lot. Possibly an episode to listen to more than once, I suggest you stay focused, and if you even get one takeaway from this episode, I have no doubt it could be the start to your own personal transformation in experiencing a little more happiness in your life. Welcome to the podcast, Dominique. Thank you for having me, Jenna-Louise. So where I would love to start is I was perusing your social media and I'd love to share something that you shared on that. This isn't a question of whether or not my life was perfect or if I had done everything I wanted to do, been everywhere I wanted to go or bought everything I wanted to buy. It is simply a question of whether if my life or quality of life were to end, I would feel content fulfilled, happy with the life that I had been enjoying myself up until that point. So where I would love to start, Dominique, is for you to share more about your personal journey in coming to value, feeling content, fulfilled, and happy. What a great question to warm up with. (laughs) So I guess for me, my My personal growth journey did begin in high school. We had a speaker come to the school and talk all about goal setting and things like that, setting affirmations. And I used that, um, you know, from my what was then called TE, the high school leaving. But then I didn't really have any substance or, or things behind that. And I got to 25 and I had this life that looked very good on paper. I had a very well-paying corporate job. I had a nice house, a nice car, and a nice boyfriend. And it all felt so hollow. Mm. And I felt so, uh, and I talk talk about this time as my quarter-life crisis because I felt so guilty for not being happy with this. 
Mm. And, and I remember saying to my best friend, I just thought my life would be fabulous by now. <laughs> and it just didn't feel right because I was doing a job that I was good at. But not only that I didn't love, I didn't like, but I had skills in that. You know, I was dating someone who was a really lovely, good, kind person, but I didn't really have anything in common with, you know. And and I was, I was you know, traveling and spending money on shoes and actually spending, I was making lots of money and spending so much of it to kind of make my life feel good because yeah. it just felt empty is probably a bit dramatic because it, it was a good life, but it just didn't feel like it had meaning or purpose. Mm. And so that really began my deep personal growth from that sort of theoretical, you know, I'll set a goal and I'll go for it. The whole way I'd ended up in this corporate job as I'd sort of, I'd been modeling and then I'd been sort of traveling and I'd been doing this sort of fun, frivolous. And I said to my dad, I'm going to get a grown up job now. And I pictured myself walking across a marble foyer. And um, this was before people could wear trainers to work. And so I could hear the clip clop, clip clop of my little court shoes going across this marble foyer. And I pictured this and I pictured this, you know, consciously and subconsciously, I pictured this in my soul. My first day at this first big grown-up job, I walked across the foyer and I was like, oh, this is it. This is what I pictured, you know, clip clop, clip clop, clip clop. And I sat down and even on first day I was like, oh, my gosh, I didn't picture what I'd do when I got here. Mm. Like this is this work for me is going to be soul-destroying. It was like, fuck up, it's only day one, but it didn't get better because it wasn't right for me. And so I guess, you know, that period in my life taught me to kind of go deep on my personal growth. You know, you can set an affirmation and have a vision, but if you haven't done the work around your values and you don't know what happiness, success and fulfilment looks and feels like for you, you're going to get the heels clipping. It's going to sound lovely and it's going to be empty. So I guess that's kind of how I began that much deeper exploration to say, well, what do I need from life if I'm to be happy and fulfilled? And it was really my own quest um, long before I discovered coaching was like, oh, I can make a job out of this quest. That's great. <laughs> but in the beginning, it was just my quest. And, and I guess that mm. quote comes from that whole thing of not necessarily being happy or euphoric every minute of every day but now going okay if I'm if it's not working I actually have a process and a method to get it working again instead of being in that emptiness where you just think you know it looks so good on paper and I should be happy and I hope that answers the question. It definitely does. I mean, that story resonates with me so much. I had a, I have a similar story um, in my mid twenties. I was around twenty six when it happened for me. But you know, I do resonate. Resonate, and I don't think it's highly dramatic to say that you can feel empty when you feel like you have quote unquote everything that you've been working towards, um, but still don't f- feel that sense of fulfillment. And I would love to know because you're known as a happiness expert. And I think sometimes it's, you know, we, we in the in the line of self-development, there's so many definitions of things. So I would love for you to share, you know, what is your definition of happiness? And sort of on from that, why is happiness a choice and how is it our responsibility? I think a couple of things. I think this, I think a lot of the time people use happiness 
in the wrong way. Like when I think about mm. happiness, it's a state of being as opposed to joy, which is an, an active mm. in You know, my children give me joy, but they don't always make me happy. Sometimes they make me right. cross, you know, whereas happiness is this, this state of being. Mm. And so a lot of the time I think people think they're going to feel happy because of something they've done or they've got or they've had. Whereas it's really happiness is a choice about how you experience things. So you can be a happy person who's going through a really difficult time or a happy person who's feeling sad or experiencing grief. Um, So I'm sort of answering your question backwards to forwards. So to me, that's where happiness becomes because it's about how are you going to move through this life? How are you going to be? What do you want your set point to be? And then the question is, okay, well, how do I do that? And I believe that this happy and fulfilling life, so it's not about euphoria. It's not about everything lining up perfectly for you. It's about a a sort of a state of contentment and satisfaction with your existence. comes from aligning yourself with your values, having a deep understanding of what matters most to you in life, and then constantly aligning yourself and realigning yourself to that and noticing when you've drifted away or noticing whenever maybe because of a life stage change, those values need to be refined and revisited. So that's the values, I think, are how we maintain that place, that state. And the choice is about continuing to have that as your set point, regardless of what is going on. And people often say to me, you know, oh, you know, you're a happiness coach, you must never have a bad day. It's like, I have a bad day. But I don't let my bad day own me. Right. And that doesn't mean I might not cry. I might not do, I might do all of those things, but I don't ever let go of that, that set point of I'm a happy person who is having a bad day. And what is that like? Sad or- because I'm like really curious in this because when I came into coaching, there was certainly a moment for me when, you know, you're someone that people come to for guidance and help, uh, you know, to achieve a particular outcome or result. And so you almost like identify when I say you, I'm saying I, I almost identify myself with, you know, being the, you know, quote unquote expert in that field. What is it like being known as a happiness expert and, you know, not always feeling happy. Like, what was that journey like for you? Like, right from the start, were you really clear that even though I'm an expert in this, I'm not always going to feel, you know, happy or I'm going to feel different emotions? Or is it something that you kind of had to grow through and learn that just because you're an expert in something doesn't mean you always have to feel that way? So I think that's a great question because what I would say is, I am not an expert in what I would say is that I'm an expert in the process of it. Yeah. How do you go about that process? So if I'm an expert in baking a cake, that doesn't mean if I experiment with a new recipe, it might flop, mm. especially if I made the recipe. Up. <laughs> but that doesn't, that doesn't mean I'm not a master cake baker. It doesn't mean if mm. I don't buy a new oven or if my oven's not calibrated, the cake might burn. And so I think about it that way. You know, I don't think that I have a responsibility to be happy in the action of happiness every minute of every day. Right. What it is, I think that, you know, what I what I bring to the table is a knowledge of how to create that and sustain that in your life mm. as your set point, as this place you come back to, as this um, 
I'll use my kids again as a, you know as another example, but it's a, it's, it's like in that place and say I'm really cross with you, but I love you so much. Mm. So it's the same with life. It's like, you know, life is driving me insane right now, but I'm a fundamentally happy person. Mm. And the other thing, which is why I was so interested to come on and, and so enthusiastic about coming on your podcast, is because I, because a lot of people say to me, you know, you must never have a bad day. But then the other thing on people is, that, you know, that they feel this pressure to feel good about every minute of their life. Otherwise, yeah. they're not being optimistic, you know, or to take every experience that comes to them and think I must turn this into something positive I'm like oh you can cry about it first <laughs> you know you can um this this story of a, a friend of mine who had to father-in-law was diagnosed with a terminal illness they upended their life was good and they upended it to go and be with him and she kept telling me about how positive it was going to be all these good things they were going to do with all of this change and she was trying to avoid the acknowledgement of that also a whole lot of grief and disappointment mm. and that went with it and about six months into this new life she was like in pieces going, oh, you know I thought it was going to be so good it feels so horrible and so because you didn't give yourself permission to be sad about it to be worried about it to be disappointed to grieve the thing you left behind and getting back to what I was saying about wanting to come on your podcast is because I believe that we need to have a whole human experience yeah so even if happiness is your set point, you're still having this whole experience. You're going to laugh. You're going to cry. You're going to feel angry. So it's not about denying any of those feelings or those experiences. It's about choosing your, your set point and mm. your nor true north and how you're planning to move through life, not about denying or negating any of those other things. Hmm. And how do you gauge that? Because I know with some people, they'll put like a time limit on it and they'll be like, you know, for 90 seconds or six hours, you know, whatever it may be, I'm allowed to feel this certain emotion and then I'm going to move past it. And then there are other people, which I would say I'm more in the other category, um, that are a bit more intuitive about it. You sort of let let the emotion process, but then you kind of know the point that, okay, like let's become centered again and let's, you know, learn from the experience and move forward. What do you sort of teach in your line of work? So I think I probably believe it's a bit of both. I remember yeah. when I was in, you know, high school and early years in university, we had this rule that if it broke your heart after two weeks, you had to get up and shave your legs again. <laughs> you know, let it all go. But after two weeks before later, right. like, yeah, I got up this morning. I've shaved my legs. You yeah. know, like, back in action. And, and I think it's about listening it, 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 I think it's actually a balance between int intention and intuition. This is a really good question. Mm. I haven't been asked it before, but I think, so, you know, I had a really big professional disappointment once and I remember opening the newspaper to find out somebody else had, you know, won an opportunity that I wanted and go, oh, I'm just going to go back to bed. I'm going to stay there mm. all day. And then knowing that there, I wasn't going to stay there the next day. It was, a, you know, I needed to, I needed to have a little pity party. I was okay about it. So mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, having a time limit is really important. But also that doesn't mean you can't still feel disappointed about that a mm. week, a month, a while later. So I think it comes back to this whole human experience. Sometimes things will happen that you can, you know, 
go to bed for a day and get out of bed the next day and go, okay, back on that horse. And other times you, you'll need to grieve and grieve is a process or you'll need to feel angry and you'll need to move through it or you'll need to learn. So I feel like mm. it's a bit of both and it's about listening listening into yourself. And I always say to people, you know, you're 100% entitled to all of your feelings, but what matters is the power that you give them. Mm. So if I want to experience pity just for a day, <laughs> I'm entitled to do that. Yeah. self-pity but how much power do I want to give self-pity in my life on the other hand you know if I'm experiencing grief it's not necessarily that I want to give grief huge power in my life but I might know that grief needs to go on a journey through my life right so that I'm saying to grief come along for the ride for a while yeah you beautiful know. and so I think it's a bit of both it's intention and it's intuition mm, beautiful love that Jim. I love the answer. (laughs) I want to circle back to values because obviously this is a really important part of your work and, you know, what you're suggesting in line of living a happy and fulfilled life. And I think in the coaching circles, values work can be quite obvious. But I think with people that haven't actually had coaching, what I've come to find is some people may not even be aware that values are so important in the way that they could be living life or the way that it could be improving their life. How would you suggest someone that doesn't have a coach begin to practically bring values into their life for their benefit? Such a great question. And my experience is the same as yours. I had a, a newish friend and she was she was in her mid-40s and she was returning to work after a career break and had gone on this, you know, how to return to work after a career break program. And she said, we talked about our values. She said, I've never thought about my values before. Yeah. Like, wow, you're like 46 and a really intelligent, you know, a peer of mine. Mm-hmm. And she said, I could recite every single company I've ever worked for. I could tell you those company values. And wow. I couldn't tell you mine because I never stopped to think about them, stopped to um, interrogate them. And so I think, you know, we, we, you know, we do what we know. And so I think values going to begin with your values. But, you know, unless somebody's actually said that to you, you don't know. So mm-hmm. I think it really comes down to this very simple question. What matters most to me in life? Mm-hmm. Most to me. But then what most people do is, uh, is provide generic responses to that. My family, security, my health. And I think it's all about peeling that onion and going deeper. So what is it that matters most to you about that? So whether you're working with a coach or you're listening to this podcast and, you know, sitting quietly in your living room or in traffic, it's about asking yourself, well, what is it about that? And, and what is it about that? You know, so for, you know, health, you know, one, everybody, everybody values their health. But one person might think, I want to feel really, you know, slim and strong and full of force. And another person might think, I want to feel rested and calm and easeful as a a value around health. Well, they're going to make different choices. Mm. And so if if health for me means feeling, you know, that calm, quiet in my body rather than chaos and I start doing some very vigorous training, I might actually take myself away from my values, not closer to. If I want to feel, you know, really... um, you know, strong and powerful, and I go and do some Iyengar yoga, I'm going, what's with this? So, which isn't to say that either of those exercise forms are right or wrong, but it's just an example to illustrate the point. You know, we need to go from our generic responses to what matters most to us and into our deeply personal responses until we can 
actually describe our core values in language that is unique and specific to us. Yeah. And then, then we can align ourselves with that. Then we're constantly kind of reconciling back to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, another, another example of such similar and different uh, things were my husband and I, you know, I thought we had the same values about work and money because we both had reasonably well-paying jobs and we both enjoyed the financial reward that came back with that. And then I studied career coaching and I realised where a little source of friction had come up with us because his values around work and money were high profit generated. So he really valued leveraged activity. Mm. And mine was high earnings anticipated. So mine was very effort reward based. Mm. So then you still have two people who whose generic values are very similar, you know, earn lots of lovely money, <laughs> but actually have very different approaches, which is why I kept saying to him, why don't you work harder? And he kept saying to me, you work too hard. Interesting. And then if that got narky, that would get into, you know, you live for work or you're, you know, you're being lazy. And it was nothing to do with that. It was to do with once you peeled your onion and you went a bit deeper, we were driven by different things, mm. different drivers, you know, you know, effort reward versus leverage activity are very different things. And so very long answer to your short question. I think as we try to understand our values and therefore give ourselves this um, blueprint that we can uh, use to guide us in life, it's not about asking the question once and taking the obvious answer. Right. It's about peeling that onion until you get to that deeply personal response. Mm. And then you kind of can you get a feeling of, ah, now it makes sense. <laughs> and that's kind of what we're aiming for when we work with values. And talk to me about the difference between intention and setting a goal and the different uses mm. for them. Absolutely. So I've created a process that I call the intention method. And what I observed was that most people fail to achieve their goals most of the time. And that doesn't (laughs) feel nice Um, because we're told that, you know, the be all and end all of success is achieving Mm, our goals. And I think the goals are important, but they're only, they're only one of three ways we can actually fulfill our intentions. So the way that I think about intention is it sits above your goals. So if you think about, what do I want from life? Well, I have a vision and I have values and I'm trying to find that point where my vision and my values intersect because sometimes the idea for this wonderful sexy life I have might be in complete conflict with my values. So I need to kind of align that or sorry, my dreams. So then I kind of can come up with, a, with you know, this vision that I'm actually saying, okay, here are my dreams. Here are my wonderful ideas. Here are my values. Okay, I can actually craft a vision for that. Then what would I do? in order to bring that to life. And I think that's where we look at intentions. And I, when I teach it, I ask my clients, what do you want to say and how do you want to feel? Mm. So let's think about it. it might be your intentions for your career. By this time next year, what do you want to be able to say about your career and how do you want to feel? Okay, then what will it take to fulfil that intention? And then you can look below that and say, well, there are going to be some goals. There are going to be some habits. And there are going to be some tasks or actions I'm going to need to take. But my goals become a peer of tasks and actions and habits. They stop being the be all and end all. Mm. And one of the reasons this is so important is because your goals, those specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time-based things are often so dependent on external factors. 
So let's say I had a goal of running a marathon and three weeks into my deeply committed training, I discover my knees can't hold up. Then my goals crashed and burned and what do I do? Maybe I get back on both or, you know, I, I let it go. But if I started from an intentional perspective, I might say I have an intention to challenge my body and see what it can do in a way I never have before. Right. Now, three weeks into my marathon training where that's proved not possible, I might say I think I'm going to give ocean swimming a try mm. because I want to challenge my body in a way that I never have before. Because that was the intention that the goal was trying to serve. So I see goals as servants of intentions and they're a tool or a vehicle that you can call on to fulfill those intentions. But once they stop being the be all and end all, you get off the success failure roller coaster. Right. And you think of them much more as targets. Okay, I was aiming for this target and that worked. Brilliant. Like I'm not anti goal. Like that's great when it works. But that didn't work. Okay, so I'll just adjust my sales a bit and I'll you know, seek seek it seek to get there another way. What's mm. another way? And keep moving. And you get off the success route failure roller coaster, which often leaves people throwing everything at it and then stopping. Throwing everything at it and stopping. And you end up in this sort of place where you can be consistent and you can be resilient and you can get back up and you can dust yourself off because you're clearer right. on the big picture that you're working towards. And that this recent success or failure was just one of the targets you were aiming for along the way. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. I love it. Which sort of brings us into, I want to hear more about your thoughts on focusing on mindset over action. Can you share more about your head, heart and dynamic space? So that um, is a part of what I call the architecture of change, the three spaces we need to consider. Mm -hmm. So just as an architect, would you know, draw the floor, draw the walls and draw the roof, we need to think about all these three spaces. Because if you just draw a roof, it's got nowhere to go. But what people usually do is start with the action. They start by focusing on their roof. You know, where do we want this to finish? And so it's not so much that I think it's that mindset is more important than action. It's that mindset needs to come first but it's not first in the sense of when I get my mindset right then I'll take action because that could take a lifetime right because we we're all a work progress it's more about asking those questions so how I think informs how I feel and how I feel determines what I do or what I experience so if I think okay here's what I want to do or what I want to experience you know, I want a pitched roof I want a cantilevered roof well here's what that how do I need to feel in order to make that something I can do with ease? Okay, so how do I need to think? Mm. So it's not that you then see in that thought space not taking action. It's just that you're aware of that. So to put that idea into motion, uh, you know, somebody tells you, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm going to send off 57 CVs because I want to get a new job. That's my action. I'm going to send off 57 CVs and three weeks later or three months later, they've sent off two and a half and they're still tinkering with the font on their CV. That's why they can't send off anymore. That's focusing on the action. If you focus instead on, you know, how do you need to think in order to how do you need to feel, then you might be able to come back and say, okay, well, I feel really fearful of this because what if I'm rejected? So then I know that the thought I need to, to access is going for a new job 
is quite commonly involves a lot of rejection. And those rejections are proof that I'm putting my CV out there. Mm. So if I think about it that way, like I'm going to send out a lot of things, it's a numbers game. I'm going to think it's a numbers game. And every time I get a rejection, I know somebody read my CV and I know that I'm putting my irons in the fire. Then, even though I may still fear, that might eliminate my fear of rejection or it might tell me that the fear of rejection is an important part of my process. Don't let it stop you. Mm. So then when I come to take the action, the action doesn't necessarily become easy, but it becomes easeful. Mm. It becomes something you can do with grace and ease. So now you can face rejection with grace and ease because you've understood what that really means. Mm. That makes sense. That Absolutely does. And I'd, I'd love to delve deeper into fear with you because I know that it's, you know, one of the biggest obstacles to us achieving what we'd like to achieve or living, living a happy and fulfilled life. Can you speak more to how fear plays into, because I know that creating lasting change is very important to you, how fear plays into self-sabotage? Mm. So when we don't, so I don't, I don't believe that we need to conquer our fears. I just think we need to become better acquainted with them. It's great mm. when you can conquer your fears. You don't need to conquer your fears to move forward in life, but you need mm. to become acquainted with them. And a lot of the time, what we do is we, you know, metaphorically hide our head under the carpet, uh, under the covers, so we can't see our fears, or we say, "I can't move forward until I've won this battle with my fears," and. And so I think we need to just understand our fears, be honest, be open. It goes back to this whole human experience. Find me a mm. person who doesn't experience fear. And self-sabotage is what happens when we haven't become acquainted with our fears. So we've set out to do something. It's given rise to fear. We've denied the fear. And so our subconscious is going to try and keep us safe from that fear becoming manifest. Mm. When we're honest about our fears and open about them and better acquainted with them, we say, well, I've got this fear, it's really unpleasant. Okay, well, here's how I'm going to move forward. The subconscious doesn't need to keep you safe from this big scary monster because you've actually looked at that scary monster and decided how you can or can't move through it. Mm. So I think managing our fears is, is always about moving through them. And, of course, as you move through them, they diminish because the same thing when you're a kid and you saw a big shadow in the room and you were too scared to get out of bed but when someone turned on the light because it was a pile of clothes or a cricket bat or whatever it might have been. But that's what, our, that's what self-sabotage is, is, our subconscious trying to keep us safe from a fear we haven't acknowledged or haven't, haven't understood well enough. So we go, oh, yeah, I'm afraid of failure, but... That's, again, you've got to peel your onion a bit deeper than that. Yeah. Like, you know, that's a very, very generic response. You've got to understand what it means. But you don't stop moving forward while you understand. You keep taking those steps as you work through it. So you don't need to resolve your fears to move forward. You just keep moving forward, but it becomes clearer. And if you find that, you oh, that was self-sabotage. Okay, what went on there for me? Mm. One of the languages I use a lot in my work is about being benignly curious. So we don't judge ourselves, but we're curious. Like, that's really interesting. I self-sabotage then. It's a bit interesting. What went on for me then? How fascinating. Not, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm such an idiot, but just how interesting. Okay, so if I self-sabotage then and I know that self-sabotage is my subconscious trying to keep me safe from my fear, what was I feeling afraid of? 
Oh, I was really afraid of that. Okay, next time I try, I'll move forward with that fear by, by my side. Mm. And so it becomes just so much more empowering, again, rather than being on this sort of, you know, roller coaster of progress, lack of progress, one step forward, one sabotage backwards. And I know that also one of the biggest obstacles that you talk about is essentially ourselves. Can you speak more to, because fear is one thing, and I guess fear maybe comes in under this umbrella, but you speak about the inner critic. Can you speak more about what our relationship should be to that? So I think your inner critic should be ignored. So as much as I think our fears, I talk about becoming friends with your fears, I think our inner critic, you should just be going, la, 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 I can't see it because it's, <laughs> nonsense Mm. it's usually nonsense and the more you listen to your inner critic the more fuel it gets it it really is you know Melissa Ambrosini talks about the mean girls but it's the perfect word for your inner critic because it is like the mean girls at school and when they think they've got you they just get worse and worse and worse but if you ignore them they go and find someone else to pick on and um and I when she wrote that I absolutely loved that description um of your inner critic but I think so, for example, if I hear my inner critic going, I would just go, it's not even going to listen. I don't engage. I don't try to negotiate. I'm just going, oh, that's my inner critic. What a load of crap. And I wouldn't engage in it any further than that because I don't think there's any any service in there. I think listening to our fears, there's service in. But there's no service in engaging with your inner critic. I think it's about just um, not listening. Mm-hmm. I can listen to that. Because you know, when you when you um, tune into your fears, there's something to learn. But your inner critic is just go is not providing you with useful information. Because if it was useful information, it wouldn't be inner critic. It would be self discovery. Mm. Oh, you know, I messed that up because I self sabotaged because I hadn't been honest about a fear. That's self discovery. Mm. You messed that up because you're a loser and you mess everything up. There's nothing to learn in there. And I think, you know, some people might be listening and sort of being like, okay, I can ignore it. But I mean, why are these thoughts happening in the first place? Like they are me, right? These are messages to me. So I think it would be helpful. Can you share a little bit more about like, what is your inner critic? Like, why is it happening? And why is it something that we should ignore? Okay, so I think I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way because I think one of the things, one of the most disempowering things we can do for our inner critic is not let it stop us, Mm. is to just take action regardless because as your inner critic, you know, your subconscious feasting off your self-doubt and what happens is your subconscious, it's a dumb instrument. It just believes what it's told. So it kind of is having this cyclical perpetuating, you're no good, I'm no good. I must be no good. Yes, because you're no good around, around, around. And my editors always say, oh, it's not an internal dialogue. It's a monologue because it's just, I'm like, you've not been paying attention to your inner critic. It's a, definitely a dialogue. It's going yeah. this way. It's going that way. It's going on. So it's, it's our subconscious fueling our self-doubt and then feeding itself on our self-doubt, feeding self-doubt to our, self, to our, our self-doubt. And saying okay just ignore it that probably sounds overly simplified but if you say if I if I 
sort of evolve that response a little and I say, don't engage with it. Mm-hmm. So ignoring it is often like is an active thing, you know, okay, just don't right. engage with it. Mm-hmm. Just let those thoughts, a bit of emotional Teflon, yada, yada, yada you know, it's, it's, it's literally saying that yada, 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 okay, when you're done, <laughs> but keep moving forward because if your subconscious is a dumb instrument and it's just going to accept it's told and you say, I'm useless, I mess everything up and you have another try, the subconscious goes, well, wait a minute, you were worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Oh, and actually you're a little bit brave because you just had a try. And but as if we just stop and let those let our inner critic paralyze us, mm-hmm. we never create a new conversation in our subconscious and we never give it new evidence. So, and there are, you know, there are lots of different tools we can engage for maybe, you know, dismantling specific thoughts mm-hmm. using, you know, um, I, I talk about reframing um, and reforming, you know, reframing with fact, reforming with affirmation. But then the third step is always and taking action. And in relation to the inner critic, and as you suggest, you know, there are different thoughts that we have within that. I'd love to speak about expectations and not necessarily expectations that we put on ourselves, but the ones that are more directed from others, because I know that you speak to this. What do we do when we kind of like, you know, we're speaking about a happy, fulfilled life you shared your story. I resonate with your story. I'm sure there's listeners on this podcast that maybe at that time in their life where they're working a job, it tends to always be in corporate, funny enough, but they kind of meet this point that they realize that they're kind of living a life that isn't true to them. And a lot of the time it can be just, you know, you're living somebody else's path. What do you do with these sort of external expectations that may have like led you to a life that isn't authentic and in alignment with your values? So I think you can't do much without understanding your values because all you do Mm -hmm. is jump from the fry pan into the fire. Right. You know, you talk about the corporate world and I um, at one point left the corporate world, went off and studied film and television and came back and worked at the BBC. And I was so sure this would be my spiritual home. And I discovered it wasn't. And it wasn't because there was something that I really loved about banking and that was how how fast-paced it was. Mm. But I didn't know I loved that. I didn't even have it on my values until I wasn't getting it. And I was like, oh, okay. So I think until we understand our values and when things aren't working, go back and ask that question, you know, what value am I not aligned to here? Or what value do I have? Mm. In that case, I didn't even know I had mm. in order to align myself to it. Because we don't, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you discover you didn't know. It's like, oh, fast paced is really important to me. So I think values are everything, which doesn't answer your question at all. But I just wanted to kind of put that bit mm. there because it, you know, it's really easy. It's the same with a relationship. You end a relationship because it doesn't work for you for this reason but unless you've stopped and worked out what you do want from a relationship and what a quality relationship looks like for you you need jerk I was with the guy who was so lovely and so kind and so wrong for me because of the bastard who broke my heart right and so I'd gone looking for somebody who was reliable dependable and you know not going to treat me like rubbish and I didn't ask the other questions that needed to be asked <laughs> You know, in, in, in yeah. between all of that. So when it, so I think the values are sort of at a foundation to it. And that's and it's when we have a really clear understanding of our values, it we're able to either get off the wrong path more quickly or identify mm-hmm. that we're not on the right path 
or resist the temptation mm. of the wrong path. Mm. But if I understood your question correctly, it was more about, but what about when you're on that path? How do you resist it? Is that what you wanted to know? Yeah, just in relation to, you know, in my own life, I'll just give an example. I studied law and politics for five and a half years, came out with a degree that I didn't realize till I finished that I wasn't passionate about, nor was I going to really use in my life. And the recognition in that was that I was doing that for external validation. It was all sort of external reward um, that I, that had fueled me to go so far into something that wasn't necessarily aligned with my values. And so I think it can be quite shocking sometimes for people to realize that they've spent so much of their life living to, you know, others' expectations, whether Mm. they be, you know, parents or friends that have directly put them on you or just society Mm. in general. How do we kind of like in, in recognition that, okay, maybe, I've been doing this for something outside of me. What do we do in the practice of then starting to live from more like the internal? Yeah, absolutely. So I I talk about those things, you know, often, you know, they're they're our coulda, woulda, shouldas, isn't it? You know, we should be doing this or we could be doing it. Just because you've got potential doesn't mean you need to fulfill that particular potential because you've got lots of potential. Mm. You know, I ended up in an accounting department because I'm really good with numbers. But just because I'm really good with numbers doesn't mean I need to be. And and yeah, so I think it's about, um, I think it's about the courage to question. Mm. And there's a really fine balance, I think, to be found with some people are navel-gazing and they're questioning everything of every minute of every day. And it's very hard to be present if you're constantly mm. questioning. So it's more about having the courage to ask the big questions, mm. but then being able to be present to those responses and to allow that un- unfold. You know, I talk about, you know, not throwing, you know, that old expression, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So a lot of the time, go, oh, I'm not happy. I need to make a knee jerk decision. <laughs> but that's not courageous. Mm. That's actually not as courageous as sitting with the dissatisfaction. And asking yourself, well, what's this really about? You know, how did I end up here? Was there a social expectation? Was there a familial expectation? Was there a fear that prevented me from, um, you know, not making a different decision when I could have? You know, I spoke to someone not long ago whose marriage had ended rather spectacularly through their own um, errors of judgment, and they said, it all would have been prevented if I'd had the courage to get off train. But I also felt like I was on a train, I couldn't get off and then talk about self-sabotage like quite spectacularly. Because like it all could have been prevented if I'd had the courage to ask the deep questions. Mm. And in that person's case, is this going to make me happy long-term? No. So I think we need to, and, and in asking our questions courageously, we then need to sit you know, we don't go, what's my question? What's my answer? I'm going to journal for 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Sort of putting it out there and letting those answers come to us and being present to um, any discomfort that brings. You know, I talk, always talk about getting comfortable with discomfort. So I think it's it's not a knee-jerk thing and it's not a quick fix because you don't find yourself in a, you know, at the end of a five-and-a-half degree with year degree without spending five-and-a-half years perhaps on the wrong path or perhaps on a path that had potential but veered off the wrong way or perhaps on a a path, you know, one of the things when I left the corporate world was like, "Mm, don't miss the money. (laughs) Really easy to 
to talk about how much you don't like it till you give back the part you did like. So again, <laughs> if you but if you spend time, you know, asking those difficult questions of yourself and being curious about your answers, then you you know you come to something you can actually work with in a sustainable long-term way. And I think another thing that's so important is that happiness is not a once and done proposition. You don't go, okay, I've worked out how to be happy. Tick, nailed this life thing because I've worked out how to be happy. It's a work in progress. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's continually asking that question. It's not navel-gazing and agonising over it. You know, am I happy this minute? But it's sort of not being afraid to reflect. And not being afraid when you get that niggle that maybe you're not, okay, I need to ask some courageous questions. Mm. And sort of in getting off this podcast for those that have been listening, they're like, okay, Dominic, I want to live a happy and fulfilled life. What is a good first step that they could do sort of, you know, say in the next five minutes? So we, we touched on it before, happiness begins with a choice. So I think mm-hmm. the first easiest um, step is to decide to be happy and then to make that your decision and then every other decision you make today, ask yourself, will this make me happy? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean happy, I say make her, will I be happy? So you choose to be happy and you continue to make choices that support that. So your Uber driver cancels on you. Do you get angry or do you think, I'll use this time to reply to someone who I've been meaning to reply to their message? You know, something happens and you keep going, okay, but if I want my set point to be happy, how do I choose to handle this situation so that I can stay happy? And I think that simple choice, so many people say to me, I always thought it was something that happened to me instead of something that I called. But that would be something that will take you no time at all and have a a fundamental impact on the way you experience your day. Yeah, I completely agree. That element of self-responsibility is just so profoundly impacting in your life when you're willing to sort of have the courage to lean into that. Thank you so much, Dominic, for this beautiful conversation and for bringing a lot of happiness into my life. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Denise. On a final note, I would love to ask you, what does it mean to you to be human? So I think we've touched on all of the, a lot of things that I think sort of weave together to, to my answer because I think to be human is to uh, embrace all of the dimensions or all of the aspects of our humanity. So to be having this whole human experience, to be human isn't to be perfect. To be human isn't to be, you know, laughing with joy every minute of every day. To be human isn't to be having a shallow sense of happiness that can crack at any minute. It's to be having this whole human experience where we show up fully present with a deep curiosity to every moment of our life.